Well, if you've got your Bibles or your Bible app, turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, we are going to spend one last look at Nebuchadnezzar this morning. And uh, what I'd actually like to do is start at the end and then go back to the beginning. Um, But this is the weekend of technical difficulties. Some of you were at the play. uh, (laughs) Last night we had technical difficulties. The play was really good, but the technical difficulties... All the little gremlins and stuff were in there. So, uh, But yeah, we're going to start at actually the end of the chapter we're going to be looking at today and going back to the beginning. So the very last sentence of the chapter we're going to look at this morning reads like this. And it says, And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Those who walk in pride, God is talking about, is able to humble. Uh, And that's just kind of like the executive summary of the whole chapter. It's the the whole reason that this chapter is in the Bible. And I want to make sure we're clear on this idea, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Because that kind of phrase appears over and over and over again in Scripture. Here's a few examples. Psalm 31 says, The Lord preserves those who are true to him, but the proud he pays back in full. Psalm 101, whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. Proverbs 16, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. In James 4, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And it's interesting because people will come and see pastors or they'll go see therapists about all kinds of problems like depression and anxiety and doubt, addictive patterns or anger mismanagement. But you never hear of anybody asking for an appointment so they can talk about their pride problems. Hey, you, know, you, you go to the bookstore, uh, look in the uh, self-help section, see how many books you can find on developing humility. Pride is kind of actually an irritating trait when we see it in other people. This is from a theological journal called the Reader's Digest. And the, the writer says this, frustrated at always being corrected by her husband, which is a sign of pride, the need to be right. says, my aunt decided next time it happened, she would have a comeback. And that moment finally arrived and she was ready. You know, she said, even a broken clock is right once a day. My uncle said to her twice. It's like, yeah, why? Why does God make such a big deal about pride? Because our world doesn't. See, in our world, pride is looked on as as kind of irritating at worst, maybe even a sign of virtue, like maybe part of being a strong, confident, high achiever. You know, be proud. Even in the church, like I've known of people receiving church discipline for sexual sin and financial wrongdoings and scandals of all sorts. I don't know if I've ever heard of anyone receiving church discipline for a proud spirit. Listen to the language God uses to talk about this condition. He detests pride. He opposes pride. He will not endure it. He pays it back in full. And I don't think the scripture writers use that kind of language casually. They use it because pride is lethal to our relationship with God and with each other. So as individuals and as a community, we need to declare war on pride. Now let's go back to the beginning of Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is a king of Babylon. It, this is the great empire of the world in that day. Uh, in the fourth chapter, the narrative actually picks up from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view. This is the setting at the beginning, Daniel 4.4. 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Now, I'll tell you how prosperous he was. He is looking at a record of achievement virtually unparalleled in human history. Again, he's a historical character. 
Babylon, the capital city of his empire, is the site of so much building under Nebuchadnezzar that it required 126 pages just to chronicle the inscriptions that were put on all the buildings that he constructed. 126 pages just to record the inscriptions chiseled into his buildings. Now, you imagine having conquered essentially the, the known world and basically with only human labor, no machinery, constructed the world's most renowned city. You guys have heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world? Maybe the most remarkable of them is said to have been the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. That was Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? The story goes, he built those for his wife who missed the trees of her mountainous homeland. So he built these unbelievable hanging gardens, suspended gardens with trees and this amazingly sophisticated irrigation system just for his homesick wife. From the roof of his palace, he could see a double wall running all the way around the city. One ancient historian says it was so wide you could turn a four-horse chariot around on the wall, 56 miles long. He built that wall. There was simply no city like this anywhere. In fact, the historian Herodotus in the 5th century BC wrote that in addition to its size, Babylon surpasses in splendor any city in the known world. And it was Nebuchadnezzar's city. He built it. It wouldn't be there if it weren't for him. I was in my palace, prosperous and contented. See, Nebuchadnezzar has now achieved what in our society would be called the good life. Right? This would be the guy you would go to for, success, for advice on successful living. You know, he'd be on Good Morning Babylon and write books like uh, self-help books, Seven Practices of Pleased and Prosperous Palace People. And, uh, did Nebuchadnezzar think that he had a problem? No, no. I was content and prosperous in my palace. Who wouldn't be? Did God think Nebuchadnezzar had a problem? See, one of the great dangers of pride is that it's almost impossible to see in the mirror. Now, I can see it really easy in you guys, but you know, I, you know, I, the people who suffer most from it, they're blind to it. Other people see it, I don't. God launches Nebuchadnezzar on this long and painful journey, and it's going to be a battle for his soul. The journey gets launched with a dream, and dreams were a real, real big deal back in the ancient world. We looked at one of Nebuchadnezzar's a few weeks ago. This is another one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, and this is a little more dire. It doesn't start out that way, though. It starts out, you know, pretty good. His dream's kind of nice. This is how it starts. Look at verse 10. Nebuchadnezzar says, These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. But then the dream goes on. There's a second part where the tree gets cut down to a stump, and the branches and the leaves and the fruit, they're all gone. And the creatures desert it. No more birds living under the tree. The stump is left all alone. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is kind of troubled by this dream, so he brings in all of his advisors and, and wise men to ask them to interpret it. They can't do it. So he asked Daniel to interpret the dream for him. But in verse 19, it says, Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. Let's just stop there for a moment. See, Daniel is very concerned about this dream because he knows it's about God's judgment and the coming of severe pain to Nebuchadnezzar. This is very bad news for the king. 
So Daniel is very concerned for Nebuchadnezzar, and he's also possibly concerned about who else? About himself, right? Because this is not a guy who takes bad news real well. (laughs) So far, Nebuchadnezzar has not demonstrated real open spirit to correction and rebuke. Who knows what he's going to do to Daniel if Daniel tells him the truth, because the furnace is not that far away. I want you to notice one thing Nebuchadnezzar gets right in this. One thing, it's kind of subtle, Because it's real clear, Daniel's got some bad news. And Nebuchadnezzar can probably tell from his body language. He was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. And Nebuchadnezzar can can see this. He can read the the room there, and he he could stop listening right there. He could could just make it real clear to Daniel, hey, you know, I just want to hear like positive news with a positive spin. But look what he says. The king said to Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. In other words, Daniel, I want, you, I want you to tell me the truth. Don't sugarcoat it, you know, no matter how bad it might be for me. I want the truth. And Daniel's like, you can't handle the truth. He didn't actually say that, but he might have thought that because Nebuchadnezzar was not far enough along yet spiritually to be able to act on the truth. That would take some more time and, and a lot of suffering. But when that day came, and it would come, Nebuchadnezzar would know what he needed to do because of what Daniel says here in these coming words. See, Nebuchadnezzar had a trusted spiritual friend. And Nebuchadnezzar says at a key moment, tell me the truth, no matter what. And eventually, from one perspective, that's what saves him. So I want to challenge you right here. Do you have a Daniel in your life? You do that. Ask someone to tell you the truth about the pride deal in your life. Because here's the deal. With so many other struggles, you know, sexual sins and anger and addictions and so on, at least you know you've got a problem. Pagan people far from God know they got problems in those areas. But you can't see pride in the mirror. Pride comes with a blind spot. And I hear that sometimes and I go, oh, yeah, the blind spot. Well, you know, other people have that probably. But I don't because, you know, I'm much more spiritual and self-aware than other people. I'm glad I'm not proud like them. It's like the Pharisee praying, like, I'm glad I'm not like this guy. So I want to challenge you to have a Daniel in your life. If you don't have one yet, get one. Pray. Ask God to lead you to one. And sometime this week, go up to that person and just ask them, like, I want the truth. Are there any blind spots, any issues in my life? Nebuchadnezzar gets one thing right. He asks for the truth, and eventually, that's what saves him. So Daniel begins to tell him the interpretation. And the first part sounds pretty good. Daniel says to him, your majesty, you're the tree. You're the tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. And that sounds about right to Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm the tree. I'm the tree. Lots of achievement. But there's a second part of the dream where the tree gets cut down to a stump and the branches and the leaves and the fruit, they're all gone and the creatures desert it. No more birds. The stump is left alone. And Daniel says to him, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the stump. You're going to lose it all. all. All that power, all that glory, all that wealth, even your capacity to reason. All those things that you thought that you earned by your cleverness, things that you thought were under your control, that's all been a gift to you. And they can be taken away, and they will be taken away. And Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he's like, well, I've accomplished all of this on my own. I need no one and no thing. Because it was all about achievement. 
You know, there's this amazing city, but there's no acknowledgement of dependence on God for every breath that he takes, every thought that he thinks. No acknowledgement that's a gift. No sense that one day he's going to be accountable to that God. And he's going to be uh, supposed to be a steward and a servant to this great city and this, this great empire and the people in it. Church leader many centuries ago named Gregory the Great wrote, Pride makes me think that I am the cause of my achievements and I deserve my abilities and leads me to despise other people that don't measure up. Pride causes this illusion of self-sufficiency that I made myself and I deserve what I got. There's an old story about a uh, CEO and his wife. They're traveling along and they stop at this gas station and uh, he goes in to pay and he comes out and he sees her talking to the, the gas station attendant. And they're talking, the kind of animated conversation. Get, gets in the car, they're driving. He's like, oh, well, what was that about? And she's, oh, it turns out this is a guy she used to date in high school. And he kind of gets like all cocky, like, yeah, you know, bet you're glad you're married to me, you know, the CEO of this large corporation instead of this gas station attendant. She's like, no, I'm just thinking, you know, if I had married him, he'd be the CEO and you'd be the gas station attendant. Yeah, there's this illusion inside of us. I, it's all about me. I made myself who I am. I'm a self-made person. And the irony is that D Daniel pronounces here that Nebuchadnezzar is going to have his career interrupted by this, this long bout of insanity. But really, you know, spiritually, he's already quite insane. He's just like out of touch with spiritual reality. So God is going to have to act now because information alone is not going to be enough for Nebuchadnezzar to develop some humility. Pride gets too deeply woven into his way of seeing and thinking and living. His agenda, his kingdom, his priorities, are, that's all he can think of. So God's going to have to interrupt his life. God is going to have to place Nebuchadnezzar under what we might call the uh, spiritual discipline of being interrupted. There is a real interesting connection between our response to interruptions and the presence of humility or pride in our lives. How do you handle being interrupted? See, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote one of the great books of the 20th century called Life Together. And he writes in it of what might be called the ministry of interruptions. Listen to what he says. He says, in Christian community, one service we should perform for each other is that of active helpfulness. This means simple assistance in trifling matters. There's a multitude of these things wherever people live. Nobody is too good for the humblest service. N not in this community. Nobody. One who worries about the loss of time that such petty outward acts of helpfulness entail is usually taking the importance of his own career too solemnly. Now, you've got to understand, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not just some slacker with nothing to do. He's a writer and a preacher and a leader, president of an underground seminary, leader of a resistance movement against the Nazis, and one of the, a handful of the most influential Christians in any century. He says, God will constantly be crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and requests. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. How do you do with that? And I was thinking about how often Jesus got interrupted in his ministry. You just look through the gospel. His whole ministry is just a series of, of interruptions. He's at dinner, gets interrupted by a sinful woman, comes up to him. 
trying to leave Jericho gets interrupted by a blind guy shouting his name named Bartimaeus. One day, he's going to speak to a crowd. He gets interrupted by a guy named Jairus. So he goes to help him. And while he's doing that, he gets interrupted by a woman who's been ill for 12 years. This is like a double interruption. Gets interrupted by lepers. Gets interrupted by children. Hanging on the cross, there's one more person who asks him for a favor. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Hanging on the cross, Jesus is a loving servant to the criminal next to him. His whole life long is just one interruption after another. He's the Messiah. It's a ministry of interruptions. It's part of Christian community. Now, this ministry of interruptions does not mean that I have to do anything anybody asks me to do. doesn't mean I can let important tasks slide or that I can be haphazard on how I manage my time or fail to follow through on commitments at work in a way that honors God. Sometimes someone will interrupt me and I need to say no, but not always. Tomorrow, someone's going to interrupt you. Maybe at work, someone's going to need a favor. Maybe at home, somebody will need help with a task. Maybe on the road, you know, so see somebody with a car problem. Maybe somebody you don't even know real well needs to be listened to or encouraged, noticed. So tomorrow, if you run into somebody that needs help, if an opportunity for serving arises at home or at work, just pause for a minute and ask God if maybe he's crossing your path. Because I tell you, friends, if you're too busy to be interrupted by God, you're just too busy. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is about to be interrupted. So in verse 27, Daniel does a remarkable thing. This is one of the most amazing verses in this book, maybe in the Bible. Daniel has now given the dream in its interpretation, and he could just stop there, you know? But look at verse 27. It says, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. You know, hey, I'm going to give you some advice. Be happy about this. He says, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Renounce your sins and wickedness. Did you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you're a wicked man? You ever been called wicked before? (laughs) My cousin and I, we were in junior high. We were goofing around, teasing our little sisters. And my grandma calls out into the yard. She goes, you stop that, you wicked boys. And I'm just like, grandma called me wicked. You know, I was like, oh, you know, I was like, it's just like, Man, that just stops you in your tracks. You're getting called wicked. Nebuchadnezzar gets called wicked. Daniel could have pulled back. He could have just like given the interpretation of the dream and then just been kind of vague, you know, like, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, just work on your spiritual life. Instead, what does he say to the king? Nebuchadnezzar, the furnace man, renounce your sins. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time that you used that phrase with somebody not counting your spouse? Like, you know, if I'm arguing with Rosalie, Rosalie, renounce your sins, Daniel 4.27. It doesn't count. And it's not a good idea. Daniel here uses it like with no self-righteous indignation, no sense of spiritual superiority, gives him no pleasure to say these words. He loves this man, but he says them. And he says them to an arrogant and ruthless king who could have him killed with a single gesture. He says them with amazing bluntness. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. Renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Or it could be translated the poor. And you got to understand, Daniel is doing some serious meddling here. Okay, When he says do what is right, it could be uh, translated do justice. Do justice. And it includes kind of the idea of a fair distribution of resources. 
It's partly an economic term, and he is now addressing Nebuchadnezzar's use of power and wealth. He says, break with your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, to the poor. Daniel doesn't say, he doesn't say, just keep living the way you've been living and ruling the way you've been ruling and just kind of theologically acknowledge that God is in control. No, Daniel is now messing with how much money is going to go into the hanging gardens and how many more walls are going to get built around the city. He's messing with how many more palaces are going to get constructed with the king's name inscribed on them. How many more human beings are going to get exiled like Daniel and his friends were? Conscripted into slavery or treated like tools and objects, beaten and killed in the process. Daniel's doing some seriously heavy messing here. This is not just about Nebuchadnezzar changing the name of the God he worships, although that includes that. It's about how we treat other people, the poor, what we would call the marginalized people. God takes it real seriously. It's how we love one another. See, pride is a condition of the human heart that is most fundamentally incompatible with love. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, love does not boast. It's not proud. In some ways, Love is like the opposite of pride because pride's all about me and love is all about others. And pride causes me to be judgmental toward people with problems because it feeds my sense of spiritual superiority and it destroys love and the inability to love. That's the darkest spiritual sickness of all. Pride causes me not to even think about or, or see those who are most needy, who are poor or oppressed. Pride causes me to think about the fact, you know, the fact that I'm not in a state of obvious material need. Uh, that's something I deserve because of my virtue or my hard work. So Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, renounce your sins. Renounce your sins. Then he goes on to say, it may be that then your prosperity will continue. It may be. Depends. Is Nebuchadnezzar going to listen? Is he willing to humble himself? Is he willing to renounce his sin? Is he willing to bend the knee? It may be. And we wonder, how's Nebuchadnezzar going to respond? You know, Does he yell at Daniel? Does he, does he dismiss him? Does he weep? Does he confess? We don't know. We don't know. Daniel says these words, and then the very next verse, this is what we're told. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? How's Nebuchadnezzar doing on the whole humility thing? He's just like walking around taking selfies, you know, hashtag winning, you know. All right, yeah. It's like, yeah. There was a book written a number of years ago by quarterback Joe Namath. Anybody remember Joe Namath? Title of his bio, autobiography was, I can't wait until tomorrow because I get better looking every day. That's Nebuchadnezzar's outlook. Yeah, yeah, things are going good. You know, no, Notice how long God gave Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, God waits 12 months. So every day for a year, Nebuchadnezzar wakes up and he chooses to ignore the dream and its message. Not going to think about that today. Every day, maybe not consciously, but every day for a year, he says, I'm not going to bend my knee to this God. I won't do justice like he asks. I, I, I will not show kindness to the poor. Not today. My city, my palace, my gardens. 
And maybe he thinks, oh, you know, yeah, it's probably just a dream, you know, too much pizza last night or something. Or, you know, maybe there's not even God there at all. Or maybe he tells himself, well, one day, one day he'll pay attention and give God his obedience, but not today. And maybe he just kind of works hard not to think about it. You know, I'm not going to think about the dream, kind of avoid Daniel, you know, don't want to talk to him. So God has to go to plan B with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar looks out at Babylon and says, is this not the great city I built for my glory by my mighty power? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. And Nebuchadnezzar is driven away from people and he ate grass like cattle. His hair grew like feathers of an eagle. His nails grew like the claws of a bird. There's actually a psychological disorder called boanthropy where a person believes that he or she is a cow or an ox. It's a real, it's a real thing. And this goes on for months or even years. We don't know how long until Nebuchadnezzar comes to grip with the, grips with the fact that, hey, I'm not God. I'm not God. Life's not all just about me. And the turning point comes in verse 34 where Nebuchadnezzar says, I raised my eyes toward heaven. And you understand, he's not talking about he looked up in the sky, you know, physically looked up. He's saying, hey, finally, finally I turned my heart and my allegiance to the one I'd been running from my whole life. Finally, I asked God to do what I could not do, to forgive my sins and give me a a clean slate, to create in me a new heart. I raised my eyes toward heaven. That's all God is waiting for because God always responds to a repentant heart. God's always ready to forgive, always ready to love. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar gets to that place. I raised my eyes toward heaven. That's Nebuchadnezzar's story. But now the question is, what's yours? God is relentlessly, implacably opposed to pride. Remember, the greatest expression of humility and deference in all of time and space is practiced in the fellowship of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God is the humblest being in the universe. That's why Jesus, God become flesh, was the most authentically humble man who ever walked this earth. And his kingdom looked nothing like Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. He did not build lots of buildings with slave labor, had his name inscribed on them. And his destiny was not a tree of glory, but a tree of shame. And before that tree, that cross, there is no room for pride. And the reason God is so opposed to pride is because pride is anti-community and it's anti-servanthood and anti-love. And it's a violation of the fellowship of the Trinity, the fellowship that we have been invited to be a part of. So I'm asking that we declare war on this one this week, tomorrow. Just let go of the whole pride deal. Give it to Jesus. Nail it to the cross. And when you wake up in the morning, remember, when you open your eyes, when you take your first breath, it's a gift. And acknowledge your utter dependence on God. And find a Daniel somewhere in your life and ask him or her to help you with your blind spots. And let God interrupt you every once in a while this week because the whole world doesn't depend on you. And now and again, notice and remember the least of these. Would you pray with me? Our dear Heavenly Father, this is, this is a hard one because it hits us all and we all think we don't really need it that much. 
because we don't struggle with pride. That's something for somebody else. It's impossible to see in the mirror. So God, I just pray that you would be with us as we as we wrestle with this. Lord, just by your Holy Spirit, touch our hearts, open us up to whatever you want to say to us. Give us that uh, Daniel in our life to help us see those blind spots. God, and just help us to bow before you, to understand that that uh, everything comes from you and we're no, no better than anybody else, that everything we have is a gift. But we're so thankful for that. And now, Lord, we just pray that uh, you would work in our hearts and lives, give us wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard and the courage to do it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.